Um, those things are are at play as as we look at the book of Revelation as well. Um, and and so that answers. Am I on now? So I don't have to yell at people anymore. Okay. Um, and so that kind of helps to answer the question that that Christians are often raising: is is it any profit to follow the Lord? That's that's what Psalm seventy three struggles with in terms of it seems like the wicked thrive in the world. Uh, they seem to do whatever they want to do, and nothing bad ever happens to them. They're they're fat and happy, and and we try to serve the Lord, and we're getting ground down in the world. Does that mean there's not any justice? Does that mean that God has forgotten His people? Has He promised to be good? Has He promised? Has He forgotten His promises to be compassionate? Um, those, those questions that God's people struggle with from time to time. We looked a little bit of that struggle in Psalm 73. Um, that's a psalm that deals really powerfully with the righteous looking at the wicked and struggling over the, the fact that it seems to go well for them. Um, and what the book of the Revelation is reminding us is that's not, that's not the case. The world also suffers in history. It's not just the church that suffers. And actually, if we think about it, the church's suffering in history um, is less than the suffering that the world suffers um, in the history of the world um, between these things. So God has not forgotten his promises. God has not forgotten to be just and even has a purpose in the suffering that we see in the world. And so we enter into cycle three, um, thinking about the, how it pictures to us the suffering of the wicked in history, um, but it doesn't come to us in a vacuum. It comes to us on the heels of cycle two. And we, we recognize that there are going to be several parallels or similarities between the seven seals that we saw and the seven trumpets that we're about to read about. Um, that there are going to be similarities between these two things. And so we, can, we, we talked a little bit last time. It's been a while since we met last time, so I'm sure you all remember perfectly everything I said. But just in case you don't, um, I want to remind us what some of those similarities were that we saw between what happened in the seven seals and what happens in the seven trumpets. Um, and one of the things we, we notice is that the scene is the same place. Um, the seven seals happened in the throne room of God, and that, that scene hasn't changed. There still is the throne room of God. That's the, the scene where this, the seven trumpets unfold. Um, there's a continuation of the prayers that come up before the Lord. Those prayers are a continuation of the prayers we saw being raised in the seven seals from the martyrs under the throne saying, how long, O Lord, before you avenge our blood? Um, those prayers are carried forward, and there's going to be something of those prayers referenced in the seven trumpets as well. But there's also a similarity of form to how these things unfold. Um, we notice that in the seven seals, there were, there were sort of four events that happened together. Uh, what, what happened when the first four seals were broken? What four things came out? The four horsemen of the apocalypse, right? So there was this sort of, I don't know, judgments poured out in the form of these four horsemen. The, the same thing is going to happen in the trumpets. The first four are going to involve judgments. So we see that similarity. Um, one of the things you're going to do if you learn to write on the board is you have to know whether judgments has an E or not. Otherwise, it gets you in big trouble later. So um, if you're keeping score at home, it doesn't. Um, so there's judgments and judgments. So the four horsemen and the four judgments. And then we start to think, okay, well, what, what is going on? Everybody wanted these seals to be opened. Uh, 
And then when they're open, all this judgment pours out. What is happening? And in, in a lot of ways, it's not until the fifth seal where things begin to become clearer about what God is doing. Um, and, and, it, and it sort of informs, uh, this is maybe is like the solution to some of the questions uh, that come out. It teaches us how to view the seals. Um, the same thing's going to happen with the fifth trumpet. That's going to sort of give the solution or, or help to make clear what's going on in these judgments that we've seen pour out. Um, and so we have the, the, fourth, the four trumpets and then the fifth, or, which are really going to be paralleling the seals. And then the sixth seal we saw unfolding in three scenes um, that helped to explain what was going on ending with a vision of God's people in glory. Um, and in the same way, the sixth trumpet is going to have three scenes. Um, and so this is helpful because there's supposed to be clear correspondence between what's going on in these two cycles. Clear correspondence between what's happening in the seals and what's happening in the trumpets. And that's going to help us to continue to advance our understanding um, of the book of the Revelation, and not just to read the trumpets in isolation and try to make sense of them simply standing on their own, but also to remind us, no, there was some connection with what has come before. There's some advance in the argument. There are things that have already taken place that we're meant to have in mind when we think about the things that are coming now. Um, and so with that in mind, then we can kind of come to the trumpets as they begin to sound in the book of the Revelation and, and begin to understand them better in light of what's already come. Um, and so with that kind of backdrop in our minds, um, I'd like to go to the scriptures and read from, um, from Revelation chapter 8 on the seven trumpets. And so we see the, the connection between, um, I should probably say, that this third cycle spans from chapter 8, verse 2, to chapter 11, verse 19. Um, that's where the third cycle really exists. Um, we're not going to be able to get all the way through it tonight, but I do want to start to think about it together um, and get, try to get the big picture before we dive into some of the details. So um, let's read about the first four trumpets. We find that in Revelation chapter Eight, um, verses 7 through 13. Um, well, we can really back up and start at verse 6. <clears throat> this is God's word. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. And the third of the waters became wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise the third of the night. 
So we have these judgments that are poured out. Um, And again, if we were just taking these in isolation, we might say to ourselves, what on earth does any of this mean? What does this have to do? Um, But we've already seen these these scenes of judgment that came in the seven seals. We've already already experienced something of the judgment. Um, And we see these judgments particularly cast upon the earth. Right? These are all judgments that are particularly affecting creation um, in, a, in a particular way. So the first trumpet sounds and this, this huge fire burns and it burns everything up. Um, we in Southern California are well suited to understand this picture. Right? You think of a wildfire that just sweeps over and burns everything in its path. Uh, so we have this picture in which all the, the third of the earth is burned, particularly a third of all the trees and all the grass. Um, now the fact that it's a third means it's not yet a final judgment, but it is a judgment on the earth, right? So on the earth and a third of the earth is affected. That's going to get unhelpful real quick. Okay, Um, a third of the earth is affected by this judgment. So it's not a picture of final judgment. It's not yet the ultimate judgment that's being poured out on the earth, Um, but it is a significant judgment, right? That's a big chunk of the earth to be affected um, by what's going on. And so that's what happens when the first trumpet is blown. Um, and one thing we notice immediately too is that this is now much more intense than the, than the previous judgments that we experience. Um, because what happened when the four horsemen came out? They came out and they affected the world, but how much of the world did they affect? You don't just know this off the top of your head? That's Okay. I don't expect anyone to know it off the top of their head. A quarter of the earth was affected. Now think back to your, I know this will give you hard flashbacks, but think back to your math class. Which is more, a quarter or a third? A third, right? This is 33% as opposed to 25%. Um, Now, See how these symbols are not so easy to understand independent of one another, but when you start matching them against one another, the meaning becomes clear. If this represents the suffering of the righteous in the world, and this represents the suffering of the wicked in the world, then who suffers more? The wicked. This is the distrustful aspect when no one one trusts that I'm asking a straightforward question. Everybody assumes I've got a trick up my sleeve. There's nothing up my sleeves. A third is more than a fourth. The suffering of the wicked is more than the suffering of the righteous. That's why it's important to see this connection and important to see how Revelation is driving through with some of these symbols. Um, so that you, it, Because you notice how if you dig down to what is the spiritual significance of a quarter of the earth being destroyed, you could come up with any number of ideas that would all be wrong, right? Um, and the same thing with a third. But if you, if you say compare a quarter to a third, then the picture becomes clear. What is that symbolizing? It's not total, but it's significant. And the wicked suffer more than the righteous. That's the picture that's being um, given to us. And if that's not clear yet, it'll become clear when we get to the fifth seal or the fifth trumpet and, and see something of the solution. But we begin to already see the judgment is harder that we're talking about here um, and it's falling on, on the earth, uh, particularly on the growth on the earth. 
uh, as, as the suffering in history. So then the second trumpet comes and casts a fiery judgment not on the earth, but on the sea. Right, and so the sea is destroyed and a third of the sea creatures and a third of the ships. And, and the assumption is the people that are on the ships as well. Um, then the third trumpet sends judgment on one third of the rivers and the springs of the earth, turning them bitter. And the fourth trumpet sends darkness on one third of the sun, the moon, and the stars, extinguishing the light of one third of the day and the night. Um, and so this judgment falls, this severe judgment on all of creation. Um, there's nothing that's left unaffected. Um, and so what do these judgments mean? What are we meant to, to see in them? Um, well, the first thing that becomes clear is they're in a sense echoing the story of creation. Um, the whole of the created order is affected in the opposite order that it was made. Right? So the Lord made the lights in the sky, and then he separated the waters, and then the green things grew. Um, the things on the sea and the things in the earth, right? And so the opposite is happening in this judgment. First, the growing things on the, on the dry land are affected, then the waters are affected, and then the heavens are affected, the lights, the lights in the sky. Um, this, is, this is the creation in reverse order being affected, widespread judgment on the creation. Um, first, of course, not primarily on people, right? There are people that are caught up in this, the people that are on ships and the people that drink the bitter waters and die. Um, but this is primarily an effect on creation at this point. Um, but we know that things are not going to get better. They're going to get worse, um, we read that when, after these four trumpets, we read in verse 13, Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. Um, so th this presages a worse judgment coming um, as, we, as we come to the end of, of these Four things, And so, of course, the natural question is not just, we've kind of looked at what they mean, but we, we want to know then, well, when is this supposed to happen? Um, when, when does this judgment that falls on the whole world, uh, when is this going to take place? Is John trying to say that these things follow chronologically? The sort of first a quarter of the earth is going to be affected, and then a third of the earth is going to be affected, and then if we you know, have to use our fraction math that we haven't used in a long time, that seven-twelfths of the earth is going to be affected. I mean, how are we thinking about these things? Do they happen chronologically? Um, how can you destroy a third of the light, right? How can you destroy a third of the light of day? Um, you can't just destroy a third of the sun. You know, this is all poetic language. And when do we see these things, these things happening? Well, just like this is happening to the church in the whole age between the comings of the Lord, this all is happening to the whole world during the age between the comings of the Lord. These things are not happening one after the other. They're happening at the same time. This is a different view on the same period of history. The suffering of the church for the purpose of being brought to glory and the suffering of the world in this age leading to suffering in the age to come. And so this is not chronologically unfolding one from the other, um, but these are happening concurrently in the history of the world. These typify the history of the world. 
uh, that the wicked suffer and the righteous suffer. The righteous are suffering, driving towards the glory of the coming of the Lord, and the, the wicked suffer, waiting for final judgment to fall. Um, and these might seem like kind of silly questions. Is, is this one after the other? Is it seven-twelfths of the earth? Is it a third of the sun? How does that work? Um, but these are all crucial to understanding that John is not meaning to talk chronologically marching through the book of the Revelation. John is meaning to show the same thing happening from different angles and to say, yes, while the church is suffering in this world, the world is also suffering in this world. And while we are suffering for a purpose and suffering significantly, it's not as if the wicked get off scot-free or if the, the Lord doesn't see them and that they don't suffer for what they are doing. Um, and in some ways, we really can't grasp all of this until we look at the fifth trumpet and see how this casts a light on those judgments that have come before them. Um, because we we saw that initially with the four horsemen, when everybody was excited about the seals being opened, and then the horsemen come out, and it's sort of like, well, I thought this was, everyone's celebrating in heaven like this was a great thing that someone could open the seals, but now that the seals are open, bad things seem to be happening. Right? It seemed there was a little initial ambiguity because the first seal opens and a white rider comes out, and okay, maybe this, that sounds good. Good guys always wear white. Um, but then it turns out that's not what's happening. There, there's judgment coming and the, and the ones that follow after him are, are worse and worse. And so how does this all fit together? Well, it, it's not really until the fifth trumpet comes that it makes clear what's happening in all of these things. Um, that, it, that it puts clearly in perspective what those four uh, trumpets represent. And so we read about that fifth trumpet um, in Revelation 9, 1 through 12. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft smoke rose, uh, rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. And then the smoke and from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails." They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Um, there, there's a clearer picture of judgment that, that comes. Um, these are following at the same time, same kinds of suffering. But the fifth is what really brings to light what is going on, uh, what is involved in this suffering. Um, and it particularly does that uh, when, we're, when we're reminded that this, this woe is coming against those who dwell on the earth. 
Um, now, we might say, well, we already mentioned that the judgments are coming on the earth. Um, so we're not really that surprised that now judgment is coming on those who dwell on the earth. Um, but in Revelation, that always has a very particular meaning. Um, those who dwell on the earth are a particular type of people. Or they, that, ref, that phrase refers to specific people in the book of the Revelation. That's always the word used for the world. For those who are in opposition to the kingdom of Christ. Those who do not belong to heaven. Um, that's how the book of Revelation sees everybody in the world. You either are of heaven or you are those who dwell on the earth. Um, that's the way Revelation divides things out. We saw this first in Revelation 3 verse 10. Uh, when Jesus said, Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the world to try those who dwell on the earth. Um, and it becomes clear as Revelation goes on that those are the enemies of God because in Revelation 6.10, the prayer of the saints is they cry out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Right? They're, they're the martyrs in heaven and there are those who dwell on the earth. That's the distinction that's being made in the book of Revelation. It becomes clear in Revelation 13.8. Uh, and all who dwell on the earth will worship the beast and everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the Lamb, in the book of life of the Lamb that was slain. Um, these woes are coming on those who dwell on the earth. That's, that's what uh, Revelation 18, 8, 13 warned us. Um, and so the focus of the, of the trumpets, who these judgments are coming upon, becomes clear through this fifth trumpet. It's coming particularly on those who dwell on the earth. These are the enemies of God against whom these judgments fall. Um, and so that's important for us to know um, before things get weird with these locusts. Because it does get weird, right? I mean... Nobody reads these things just like, oh, okay, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Um, we've never seen locusts like this. Most of us have never seen locusts, but you've never seen locusts like this, right? Um, so this is a very strange image. So if for, if for nothing else, we can be comforted to know that if we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, these things have nothing to do with us, right? These are, this is the judgment that's being poured out on the wicked. You, know, you notice that they're told, you leave the creation alone, you go after the people, Right? That, that's what makes these locusts a particularly frightening kind of locust. Because when locust swarms came, people didn't worry about being out in the locusts because the locusts were after the farm. Right? They were after the crops. Um, these locusts aren't after the crops. In fact, they're told, you leave that alone. What are the locusts after? They're after the wicked. Um, it, it's a far more terrifying picture of judgment um, that comes. But the judgment is against the wicked. That's what becomes clear in the seventh trumpet. The bottomless pit opens, right? This is from, this is from hell that this is coming. Uh, the smoke emerges. Locusts come from it, a flying cloud with the stinging power of scorpions. Um, and the detailed picture of the locusts really underscores the terrible suffering that's awaiting the wicked. Um, you know, the, the, it's, it's a horrifying picture. It's meant to be not just weird, but sort of terrifying. Um, these are frightening sort of things out of out of a horror show. Um, these 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 locusts that have 
uh, look like small soldiers with crowns, with faces, with hair, with lion's teeth, with armor, with poison in their tail. Um, these are not helicopters, right? These are um, visions of, of creatures that have come to destroy the earth. Um, it's kind of ironic that the people who are the most insistent on you know, literalism in Revelation will turn these into any kind of weird thing like helicopters or something, and they'll say, you know, John didn't know what he was seeing, so he just described it this way. Um, I don't know that I would say helicopters have hair, um, but we'll leave that aside. You, you have to do something with these as symbols. They, they can't be literal anything, or John's seeing something he just doesn't know how to describe. He's describing what he sees, and what he sees is a picture of something horrific, right, that, that is coming to, to destroy, has a stinging in his tail. Everyone understands who reads John locusts, right? But these are sort of like modified, worse than you've ever seen locusts. So it's like th- their biggest fear on steroids. Um, so they understand that, that basic image, but this is far worse than anything that they can imagine. It's a picture of suffering, um, and, a, and it's, a su- it's a picture of terrifying suffering. Um, that, that's what's coming for these people. And coming for whom? Well, the, the, this is the key in verse 4. They were, not, they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. You see how, again, what happened in the seven seals is relevant to what's happening now. Um, the people that were sealed by God are the same people who are immune from the judgments that are now falling on the world. The, these horror show creatures who bring destruction, bring destruction on everyone who's not been sealed. And who are the people that have been sealed? We just have to go back here and say they were the people of God, who God sealed against the judgments that were coming. Um, so these are the same people that were safe and safeguarded by God. Here, this judgment has no power over those people. It's sent against those who are the enemies of God. Um, and that this is, again, not ultimate judgment because it's supposed to last five months. And so there's a period of time here, five months. Okay, five months is not a long, long time. Um, it's a long time to be attacked by mutant locusts um, who have stings in their tail and cause death and suffering, right? Um, was there a time frame at any point in the seven seals? Anybody remember? About a half an hour. Remember that? There was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. And we said, that's kind of weird. Um, it, it was a half hour wait to glory. It's a five month suffering. You see what's happening with some of these times and time frames? They're meant to be compared to one another. The righteous wait about in a half an hour. And we said, when you're sitting in the silence, that can seem like a long time. Um, it's nowhere near five months. Right. Think, think about if somebody said to you, you're going to go to prison for about a half an hour. So, okay, I can do that. Someone said you're going to go to prison for five months. You might feel a little differently about that. 
Um, this, is, this is part of the comparison. This is why some of these images are sort of impenetrable looked at alone. Right? They're, it's not so clear what a half hour is or what five months is in isolation, but when you compare the two across to one another, you can say, well, this is easily a lot less time. Um, it's a lot less time to wait for glory than it is to suffer. Um, there are still these things going on in the midst. Um, and so w- what is being told to us? Well, the wicked are going to suffer in history. And even though the righteous can feel at times, well, the wicked get off scot-free. Um, the Lord isn't really, doesn't seem to be doing anything about this. Um, this is reminding us, you know, there is suffering for the people of God, but it's far worse for those who rebel against him. Uh, the, the suffering that's going on for the wicked, they're certainly not escaping. Um, they've always outnumbered the righteous in the world. Um, and their suffering is always going to be greater than the righteous in the world. And so it's a lie to say that we, we don't suffer, um, that, that people don't suffer as much. Uh, the world suffers far more than we do. They're, they're, there's more of them. They don't have a helper. They suffer alone. Um, how many times do Christians in the midst of their suffering say, you know, if, if I didn't know that the Lord was on my side, if I didn't know the Lord was with me and supporting me, that Christ died for me, I don't know how I could go through this. Right? The world is full of people that don't have that hope, don't have that support. Um, and they, you know, they try to pour everything else into the, the God-shaped hole that exists in all of us without him. But there's nothing that will supply that. They suffer more in soul. They suffer more in body. There's more of them. They suffer more in war. Um, and, and why does God have this suffering? Right? We, know, we know why the righteous suffer, that, that they're suffering in order that they might be built up to endurance and, and overcome with the Lord that we're following the path. What, what is the point of suffering seen more broadly in the world? Is that just God's judgment? Does God have a, a purpose in that? Um, and I think what, what Jesus taught was that when things go wrong in the world, when things are suffering in the world, it, it serves as something of a wake-up call. Um, it's a reminder to us just how fluid and temporary and vulnerable our lives really are. Um, and it's always, suffering in the world is always a wake-up call that sin is real, that, that death is real on account of sin, that there needs to be a reconciling with God before the end comes. Um, you know, this is sort of brought forward pointedly when Jesus is teaching his disciples um, in Luke 13, when, when people are asking him about, you know, disasters that befell uh, the people in, in Jesus' time. Luke 13, 1 through 5, there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, but I tell you, unless you repent, you all likewise will perish. Um, that, God, that God uses these things to uh, lead people to repentance by reflecting on sin and judgment and, and the, the ultimate things that are before us and to call people to an account so that they might turn to the Lord and be saved. Um, you know, Jesus says, it's not so important that you figure out who was the greater sinner or did this happen to them for some reason. 
the, the real thing you have to reckon with is this is what awaits everybody without the salvation of the Lord. Unless you repent, everyone will perish. Um, that suffering in this world does have a purpose in God's plan to, re- to, to remind people that, that this life doesn't carry on the same way all the time. Um, it's, it's the same argument that Peter used when in, in 2 Peter when he says, you know, everybody is always saying, like, where is the promise of his appearing? And the world keeps going on, and he said he was coming soon, and he's still not here, and, you know, where's the promise of his appearing? People say that. And they say, you know what, the world's gone on just the same way all the time. Nothing's changed. The world goes on as it's always gone on. You're talking about a judgment, but nothing's going to happen. Um, the world's always been this way. And Peter says, you know, actually that's not true. The world was going along its, its merry, happy way, and then it was destroyed in a flood. The world has already come to one cataclysmic end, and it's coming to another. And that's not going to be a cataclysm of water. It's going to be a cataclysm of fire. And it's not going to be a cataclysm of water that just destroys the earth. It's going to be a cataclysm of fire that destroys the heavens and the earth. So Peter says, you know, people can say, oh, the world's always gone on this way. He says, it's not true. It's already been destroyed once. There's already been a testimony to God's judgment, a call to repentance. And that was the message Noah, Noah preached. He was a preacher of righteousness to get people to repent before the end comes. That's what is going on um, in these judgments. And so the fifth trumpet is really helping to make clear who is this judgment coming on and where is it come and who's exempted from it? All those who are sealed by God. Um, and so there is this clarity that comes with the fifth trumpet before the sixth trumpet blows. One woe has come and there are two more yet to come. Um, and so we see the sixth trumpet and the, and the three scenes of the sixth trumpet um, in Revelation nine thirteen through eleven fourteen. So if we look at Revelation 9, 13 um, through eleven fourteen, I know is a, is a long passage, but it's all of a whole. We're not going to be able to get into all the details of it as we go along, but um, I think it's good for us to read it as a whole and see how it all holds together. Uh, so Revelation chapter 9, beginning at verse 13, then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur And the heads of the horses were like lions' heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses was in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails were like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. They did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, 
and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring when he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, and the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff and was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky so that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying, and they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the people of the tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in the tomb, and all those who dwell on earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath from the life of God entered them, breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. Then they went up in heaven to a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and the tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Um, so this is the, the sixth trumpet now sounding in the cycle. And we said, just like the sixth seal had three scenes, the sixth trumpet is comprised really of three scenes that we see um, playing out for us. Um, we, we have seen these correspondences that are, that are important. Um, in the fifth seal, we saw the temporary rest of the blessed in heaven. Um, in, the fifth, in the fifth seal, we saw the temporary suffering of the wicked on earth. 
Um, And in the sixth seal, we saw three scenes of the future. Um, Here in the sixth seal, we saw three scenes of the future of the righteous. Um, And there was the the scene of final judgment, the scene of the gathering of the elect, and the the final scene of glory in heaven. Um, So these are the scenes that we saw for the righteous, and there are going to be three scenes also for uh, the wicked in the sixth trumpet um, of what befalls them in the earth. And for them, there's a scene of even more deadly judgments that come in history. Um, We see that coming particularly in chapter 9, verses 13 through 21. Um, In the second, we see something of the mystery of God's providence through the judgments in history. Um, That really is chapter 10, verses 1 through 7. And then thirdly, we see the continuing witness to God's truth directed at the wicked in the world. And that's the, the rest of the chapter. Um, strange pictures, to be sure, um, going on, things that we might not you know, immediately see what, what the meaning of all of them is. Um, but again, we can see how this correspondence between these two things is helpful um, for showing the, you know, the, the further judgment that comes following that temporary judgment, just as we saw the further glory that comes after the temporary suffering of the righteous. Um, and so again, this helps to kind of put, in, put things in perspective for us and helps us to see what's going on here, despite again, the strange pictures that come at us um, and, and the, the host of imagery that comes at us in these, in these passages. So um, let's think about, um, let's see where to put these scenes. Um, I'll erase this one. Okay, so this will be the, the sixth trumpet. And we'll think about the first, the first scene of the sixth trumpet, um, which is judgment in history. And that's... Uh, Nine thirteen to twenty one. Okay, so this is the the judgment in history, um, and interestingly, this scene also features four angels, just as the sixth scene, the sixth seal, first scene featured six angels, six angels that were holding back the winds of judgment. Um, now these seem to be different angels um, and doing different things, but we can't miss the correspondence between the four angels in the first scene of the sixth seal and the four angels that we find here in the first scene of the sixth trumpet. Um, Again, this is all important to read these things together, and it might be a little tedious to keep going back and forth, but the correspondences are important in helping to explain to us what's going on, to show that these things don't happen in isolation, that they depend on one another, they build on one another, they help to explain these things. So um, there are that, so there's that similarity, but there are significant differences. And the sixth seal, like I said, the angels were holding back the winds of judgment until all the elect could be saved. Um, here the four angels are at the Euphrates River and, and released to carry out judgment on the world. So as, as the four angels in heaven were restraining influences, these are actually agents of judgment sent out into the world. Um, they're not restraining judgment, they're, they're releasing it to be, 
to be poured out. Um, we see that in, in chapter 9, uh, verse 14. They're at the Euphrates River, released to carry out judgment on the earth. Um, and so they're, this judgment is carried out. So they don't seem to be the same angels because those angels that were holding had universal power to withhold. They withheld all judgment from being poured out until the righteous were sealed. Uh, these angels don't have that same universal power. They're, they're again released to bring severe judgment, but not judgment over the whole earth. This is again not yet ultimate judgment or final judgment. Um, but these four angels are to bring um, to the wicked, to those who dwell on the earth, the judgment that's already brought, been brought on nature. So as they come pouring out on, onto the earth in their judgment, um, the judgment is severe, right? A third of mankind. Um, so this, this severe judgment is poured out um, on, on the suffering in the world. Um, so the sufferings of the wicked in the fifth trumpet become death in the sixth. So just as you know, the suffering of the righteous became glory, uh, the suffering of the wicked ends in death. It's a reminder again, the wages of sin are death. Um, and the call to repent and turn, lest you perish. Um, that's, that's the calling to everybody who reads Revelation, because the, what's coming is clear. First judgment on the earth, then judgment on the wicked, and then death. Um, there's really no missing what, the, what the, the, the final point of all of this is as it unfolds in the book. Um, and so with these four angels come forth an immense army of uh, mounted troops, so we have these, the, the, the angels, they release the, the army, and then the number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. Um, I heard their number, John says. I think it's important because the, the size of the army is so massive that John couldn't possibly have counted how big this army is. He has to be told how big this army is. And, and he, what he sees is an army of 200 million soldiers. Right, so, so we have 200 million mounted cavalry that John sees. That's a big army. You can write that down in your notes. That's a big army. Um, you know, mounted troops were, were one of the most powerful kinds of forces that they had in the world at this time. And to have a huge army of, of cavalry was a big deal. To have 200 million in your army was to have an army that was 10 times bigger than the whole Roman Empire. And so John can't possibly have counted an army this size. So he says, I heard their number. Somebody told me in heaven, that's how big this army is. And what this would be meant to do in John's day was to impress you, nobody can deal with an army of that size. If you could, you know, lay out the whole of the Roman Empire at John's time, you still couldn't have mounted 20 million people. Um, and here's this army. And what, what this is is an impressive view of, of that, that heavenly host that exists, that serves the Lord, and that is an overwhelming picture of the might of God. It, it's an army that can't be reckoned with, is what is what John sees. It's an army that you can't possibly deal with. Um, you might remember 2 Kings 6, uh, 16 and 17, when Elisha says, do not be afraid for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. 
Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Right? This is the view that God's people are given from time to time, that there are more with us than there are against us. And John is given a, a powerful vision of just how many more are with us than are against us. Those who are with us cannot be dealt with. That's the picture John sees. This army that rides forth is, you can't defeat it. It's impossible. It's too big, it's too strong. Um, and they're stronger and more glorious than the army of locusts that has come forth. Um, and again, where you could look at all of the, the features of the locusts and just say, weird, because um, it is weird, right? Um, when this new army comes forth, some of, some of the weirdness of it is removed, again, by way of comparison, because that was a locust army, and here is this great mounted cavalry coming through. But there are similarities between the two. Right? That was kind of the weird thing about the locusts is that they had horses. You usually don't see locusts on, you know. And I don't know if a, a locust on a horse is that intimidating. A little tiny, tiny horse, right? And I mean, but here are like mounted soldiers on war horses. This is a much bigger, more glorious picture of an army. Um, both had breastplates. The locusts had breastplates like iron, we're told in Revelation 9.9. But this army has breastplates of fire, of sapphire and sulfur. Right? It's a more glorious army that's coming forth than the locust army. Um, and there was a focus on the heads of the locusts. Um, they had golden crowns and human faces. Um, this army has lion's heads and fire and sulfur come out of their mouths. This army is, is, in a sense, more glorious and yet more lethal, um, more, more devastating. The first army had tails like scorpions. The second army has tails like serpents. Um, you know, the, sec the first army was a wounding army. The, le the second army is a killing army. Um, there, there's a sting in the serpent, unlike the sting in the scorpion. Um, a scorpion's sting might make you, make you sick. The serpent's sting will kill you. I think that's what's being transmitted. Um, that's, that's the damage that we see in comparison. That the locust army largely brought suffering. The angelic army kills people by the fire, by the smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. They also kill with their horses' tails, which are like the heads of snakes. This is a bigger, more glorious, more devastating army that rides forth. Um, and what is, what is the purpose of all of this? Um, what is the purpose of this army riding forth to do this kind of damage? Um, and again, it's to demonstrate the holiness and justice of God and to point to anybody who's reading this of the necessity of repentance. Um, in, in the book of the Revelation, by and large, everybody's fate is set. The book, either, book already greets you as a citizen of heaven or a a citizen of the earth, as those who are citizens of the king or those who are opposed to the, to the lamb who was slain. Um, the book lays it out like that, but of course, all, everyone who's meant to read it and listen to it and hear what it says, the message it's always conveying is, don't be those who dwell on the earth. Don't be those who resist the king um, and who meet his army in the end. 
You, you want to be the one who he's sealed and who has put their faith and trust in him and who are guarded by him. And then when the whole force sweeps over you in this, in, when the judgment sweeps over this world, those who are sealed by the king won't be touched by it. Um, but those who go on in their sin, who are unrepentant, this is what waits for them. Suffering in this life and this kind of suffering in the life to come. And the book is appealing to everyone who reads it to really hear it. To hear of the fate of those who don't want to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, who don't want to repent of their sins, who don't want to walk with him, they will face the judgment that's coming. And the judgment that's pictured is is worse and worse and more and more as it goes on. Um, And the book is imploring us not to end up like the people in verse 20. In in chapter 9, verse 20, we read, The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the work of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or of their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Um, You see that God's justice is right. Right? None of the people that are afflicted in all these ways ever turn to him, ever seek his mercy, um, ever, ever seek any righteousness from him. They, they simply want to die, we're told earlier. They longed for death, but they don't repent. Um, and they continue in all of the sins that they've committed. Um, that first sin that's specified is idolatry. Clinging to the idols that cannot help. It's a pretty sad picture, isn't it? Of imagine this, this, this scenario playing out where this unstoppable army is marching forth against you and you're kneeling down before your piece of stone begging for it to save you. And it can't hear you and it can't help you. Um, and yet they don't repent of it. They're, it's as if they're sitting there continuing to entreat these things that can't help them as the, the unstoppable force of the Lord's army is marching against them. They're still pleading with these pieces of stone and wood to save them. Um, it, it's the sadness of this idolatry. Um, it's a reminder of Psalm 115, verses 4 through 8. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but they do not walk. They do not make a sound in their throat. And those who make them become like them. And so do all who trust in them. Um, You worship dead nothings, you become a dead nothing. That's the message that comes across clearly here. And not just idolatry, but murder and magic, immorality and stealing. These are all... You know, it's sort of a 10 for 10 in the Ten Commandments that they're guilty of, all the way down the line. Um, They commit everything that God has called them not to do. Um, So can we say that the wicked never suffer, that the wicked never really get justice, that the the wicked never really come to any harm? Uh, Well, no. Uh, The wicked do suffer. They suffer for their sins in this life, and they'll suffer more in the life to come. Um, there's no escape for the wicked. Um, It's important that the wicked know that. 
Um, it's important also that the righteous know that. Um, so that we know that not just for our sakes, but also for the Lord's sake. Because really the people that continue on in their sin and say, I'll never be caught, they're really saying something to God. Um, we might complain that it feels at time to time like nothing ever happens bad to the wicked. But the reality of is that the wicked are saying that God just doesn't see. Um, that always strikes me as the, as the sort of strange opinions of the wicked in Psalm 10, where they say, you know, there is no God. I, do, I can do all this because there is no God. And then later they say, well, there is a God, but he doesn't see. You know, God, God may be there, but he doesn't see what I'm doing. And then later they kind of change their tune and they say something even worse. That God's there and he sees, but he just doesn't do anything. He doesn't care. Um, and, and the psalmist recognizes that we feel that way from time to time. We feel like, Lord, do you see what's happening? And if you see what's happening, do you care? Um, and, and where Psalm 10 takes us is to say the Lord does care. The Lord is there and the Lord sees and the Lord is taking this all into account. Um, that, that's the good news for the righteous when we suffer and when we think, is anyone ever going to do anything about all of this suffering? Is there ever really going to be justice? Um, and beautifully, Psalm 10 reminds us, the Lord does see. Um, and he's, he's taking it all into his account. Um, he takes note of wickedness and vexation, the psalmist says, until he'll hunt it out of the world, and he hunts it out until he finds none of it. Um, the, the Lord does see. There's no escaping um, his judgment. But we do from time to time see the mysteries of his providence playing out in this life. And so while this scene assures us that his judgment in history is always done, um, the second scene does say, yeah, but there are mysteries to his providence. And we see that in chapter 10, um, 1 through 7. The mystery of his providence. Um, because how and, and when God does this is, is up to him. Um, and so the second scene of the sixth trumpet is of a remarkably powerful angel, glorious and in some ways similar to the lamb, right? Um, the, the, there's a lot of similarities from the lamb who came to take the scroll, Right, then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun and his legs like pillar of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand. And he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. And when he called out, seven thunders sounded. When the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it and the earth and what is in it and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God, would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Um, and so what it, what is happening here in the mysteries of providence? Right? The, the importance of this angel is magnified for us. 
right? He comes down with this kind of glory, he has the sort of glory that we saw true of the Lord Jesus Christ at the beginning of the book of the Revelation. He sets his feet, right? As he's about to say something important over the whole world. His voice is like thunder. Um, and it's clearly not just noise, right? It's something that's said. John hears what's said. And so we're all, we're all set up for this sort of great moment of, of revelation as his worldwide importance is so clear. And then what does he say? Well, we don't know because John was about to write it down and then he's told, don't write it down, right? Seal it up. Um, and when that happens, how do we all react to that? Um, we're sort of like, oh, man, what did he say? right? Um, if you read this to a little kid, would, that would be their first question, right? What did he say? You say, I don't know. I wish I knew. But John was about to write it down, but he's told not to write it down, but seal it up. Um, and it's one of those moments where we say, well, then why would the Holy Spirit record this whole, you know, couldn't we just do without this little piece of the passage? Because we don't really seem to advance the thing at all here. <laughs> he speaks, whatever he says can't be written down, um, so how do we make sense of this? What, what is the point of what's going on here? What does it mean that there are still some secrets? Right? At other points in the book, we, we said, we, we've noticed that they've said, don't seal it up for these things are about to happen. Right? And so there's this great, okay, the, the, this is about to happen. And then there's something that's sealed up. What does it mean that there are still some things that are sealed in this book? Um, well, it's a reminder to us of the mystery of providence, that there are things that God knows uh, that we are not meant to know and that we don't get to know. Um, there, there are things that are declared by God that are going to be, but we don't know what those things are. Um, they, they remain hidden from us. We don't always know what the future will be in detail the way God knows. Um, <laughs> And it's a call to patience in the face of this, right? We read something like this and we become impatient. What does it say? When, when do we get to know what, this, what he said? Um, well, you get to know when you get to heaven, I suppose. Um, or when the Lord Jesus Christ comes again in glory, it'll be unsealed and we'll know what the seven thunders said. But for now, we don't know what the voice said in those seven thunders. That's sealed up for us. And we're called to patience in the face of these kinds of mysteries, what has God decreed for history? Um, well, that's his business. Um, but he's decreed it. Um, and we should take comfort from that and be patient until the things that are hidden now are revealed in God's time. Um, that can be a hard thing to do. Especially when we're asking the why questions of his providence a lot. You know, why does God allow a massive earthquake in Puerto Rico after they're just recovering from the massive hurricane that swept through there? Um, why, why does God allow people to come through and shoot up schools or shoot up churches, right? Why does God, or synagogues, why does God allow that to happen? We have a lot of questions like that. Why does God allow things to do that? Why does God let his people suffer the way that they do? Why does God do what he does? Um, well, the, the why we know some things about it. We know that he works all things for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. But we can't always see in those things how he's going to bring good out of it. 
You know, sometimes we look at things and say, I know that he's promised to bring good out of this, but I don't see how you could possibly do it. Um, sometimes we even feel like even God couldn't turn this into a good thing. Um, and it's a call for patience. Because the angel doesn't, we're not told what the angel says in the seven thunders, but the angel does say something that John does write down. Right? We're not told what he says in the seven thunders, um, but he does take an oath. Right? And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created in heaven and what is in it, earth and what is in it, the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay. That there would be no more delay. But that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. There's a lot of things that we don't know. There's a lot of mysteries that we don't know. But the revealed thing that's given to us here is a glorious word. I don't know what all is going to happen, but I know there's going to be no more delay. I know that the Lord is coming soon. I know that the time is short. Um, that the mysteries that still confront us and confound us in many ways are coming to an end. Um, and the time is near. That's where the book started. The time is near. There's not going to be any delay. So it's, yeah, we're, we're living in the mystery, in some of the mysteries of providence and those things that God has known and decreed but hasn't revealed to us yet. We're still living in that mystery, but the time for delay is over. The time is soon. There's not much longer to wait till all the mysteries are revealed and the will of God is sent forth in the world. That's the good news for God's people. He's going to do these things soon. And whatever, whatever wounds we suffer in this, in this, while we're living in this mystery, all, all in the midst of these times that call for patience, we have that great hope that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming who is the healing measure to everything that afflicts us in this world. The yeah, life is a mystery and why things work this way is strange, but it's about to be set right. There's not going to be any more delay. Uh, the time is short. Behold, he's coming soon. That's the good news of the book of the Revelation. And so this is a call to patience and a call to God's people to wait in the midst of these mysteries, but to know that God is coming and that the time of healing is coming soon. Um, Psalm 10 says, you know, not only that the Lord will take wickedness into account, um, but he says that the Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that the man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Um, it's, it's not yet over, but there's not going to be any more delay. It's coming soon. That's the hope in which Christians are to live um, in the book of the Revelation. Um, and that brings us to the, to the third scene um, that we have in, um, and that's the biggest part of, obviously, this um, this, this cycle, this trumpet, um, and that's from 10.8 to 11.14. Now, if you're afraid I'm going to try to unpack all of this tonight, don't worry. Um, we couldn't possibly go through all of that tonight. But what I would like to do is kind of set the stage for it so we can get into the details of this scene uh, when we come back next time. 
um, to think about this, this, third, this third scene, God's truth in a wicked world. Um, God's truth in a wicked world. That's really what we see in this, in this third scene. Um, and what we've, what we've noticed is, I mean, any, anybody who studies Revelation, this part of the prophecy is subject to a lot of various interpretations of who these people are and what this word is and where this takes place. And um, there's a lot of confusion, a lot of uh, different ideas about this. And that's why reading the whole of Revelation and going through it and considering it as a whole book is again helpful to try to understand what's going on here. Um, the beginning of cycle from the beginning of cycle three, the focus of this cycle has been on the whole world and the wicked who live in this world. So that's what's always been going on. It's it's been a focus on the whole world and the wicked that live in this world, and that that universal concern is clearly continuing through here. Um, so if we look at, at chapter 10, verse 6, right, um, that was the earth and what is in it, right? The, the trumpet's going to be sounded. The seventh angel, the mystery of God will be fulfilled just as he promised through his servants, the prophets. So there's been this, this worldwide thrust so far, the angel standing over the whole world, pronouncing a word over the whole world. Um, so this is, there's been a worldwide focus in all of this, um, and now we have this mention of the word of the prophets. Uh, that the word of the prophets would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Um, and so there's this remembrance of the days of the prophets. That, that's called to mind. Um, and, and there's going to be a transition in this book where he's going to use a lot of language that harkens back to the prophets. Um, and, and if we were you know, great students of the word, we would recognize all of the imagery of Ezekiel that's coming out that John has kind of put in the Ezekiel role. He's given a scroll to eat, um, which, you know, is a weird image, but it's, because it's come before in Scripture. Um, he eats the scroll. It tastes sweet, but it goes sour in his stomach. Um, he goes to measure the temple. All of those things are, the, what are things that the prophet Ezekiel did. And so we're calling to mind again something of the, the Old Testament imagery, like we did in the seven seals, right? Where there was this, this imagery and picture of the, the 12 tribes of Israel, the 144,000 sort of put in terms of the Old Testament people of God. And we said that wasn't really about the Old Testament people of God. That was about all of the people of God who believed as Abraham believed, right? That was still universal in scope to Christians. So we're still, we have to still think of this as being that same focus on the whole world, on all the wicked in the world and all that's going on in the world, we have to still think of that same focus um, because some people have tried to narrow this scene down to talk about some kind of Jewish circumstance. So this has only to do with the Jews because we hear more language again of the temple, we hear language of the prophets, um, we hear talk about the holy city. And so some people have looked for an actual literal fulfillment of um, 
of, of this happening in Jerusalem somehow, that this is talking about something that will happen in literal Jerusalem um, and these events unfold. And so that's why I say all of that, all that to say, that's why we have to maintain this continual worldwide focus. That's what's always been in focus. This does not take a radical left turn now to talk about some specifically Jewish word. Um, this is still talking about the same scope um, that's been talked about, simply using the language of the old covenant people of God again. Right, That has happened again and again in Revelation. We've used Old Testament themes, Old Testament pictures to explain what's going on here. Um, and, that's, and that's continuing. And that's specifically continuing with, with this um, Ezekiel metaphor. Um, and so this is not talking about some future three and a half years that's going to happen in the Jewish experience. Right, this is still maintaining the same broad focus that we've had going on. Okay, have I belabored that point enough? I think I have. Um, so what is this really about? Well, the instruction to John is still universal. Right, in, in Revelation 10, 11, what is John told? You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. The focus is still universal for John's ministry. He's still going out to all the world. Um, second, the temple um, that's talked about in Revelation 11.1 1, can't be the real temple of God in Jerusalem. I'm talking about the literal temple of God in Jerusalem. Now, why can't it be the literal temple of God in Jerusalem? Because by this time, the temple's destroyed. Almost everybody, all really good New Testament scholars are agreed on that. John is writing the, God, the, the book of the Revelation probably in the late 90s um, AD, and the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. So the temple's been destroyed for at least probably 25 years by the time John is writing this. So he's not talking about the literal temple. Um, he's, he's talking about a symbolic temple. This is, again, symbolism meant to convey a certain truth. Um, we know that because in the course of this vision, the holy city, um, which you know people would say that's Jerusalem because the temple's there, so clearly it must be talking about the holy city, but the holy city of Revelation 11.2 becomes the great unholy city in Revelation 11.8. Right? It's called Sodom and Egypt or identified elsewhere in scripture as Babylon. So it can't be all of these places literally. Right? It can't be Sodom and Egypt and the place the Lord was crucified. Right? So what, what is being pictured here? It's being pictured this, this reality of God's truth in a wicked world, that the holy people of God, the holy temple of God, exists in the midst of this wicked world. Um, so this is not a picture of a, a future Jewish event in Jerusalem. This is a picture still of the worldwide history of the Lord. And the story of the two witnesses in the holy city is closely patterned after the life and experience of Jesus. Um, and, and so in a lot of ways, that's symbolic of the life and experience of Jesus. Now you might have looked at some of those things and say, well, that actually sounded more like Moses or mo more like somebody else. But of course, Moses or somebody else were all pictures of what Christ would come and ultimately do and fulfill. Um, and so that's why these things can't be some picture of literal events in literal Jerusalem. These are still talking about the broader perspective on the world um, and, and how God's truth advances, how God's truth survives in a wicked world. 
Um, So it's not about some curious future episode in Jerusalem, but it's a way of speaking about the ongoing conflict between the church and the world. Um, And the real point here is that the church's face in the world is experiencing a life very parallel to the life and experience of Jesus. Um, God's truth in a wicked world is greeted the same way between the comings of the Lord as it was when he brought the truth into a wicked world. That God's people are entering into that same experience um, of Christ in the world. Um, and so we need to understand that, and, and maybe that doesn't seem like really important to you, but if you read things on the Revelation, people will try to figure this as a particular three-and-a-half-year Jewish Jerusalem event. And that's where you can get into bad places of you know reading your newspaper, trying to figure out, are we in the Revelation 11 times in Jerusalem right now? Um, and and you know, th- that kind of strange way of reading um, Revelation. You know, I have a friend who knows I'm teaching, a pastor friend who knows I'm teaching on Revelation. He sent me some story about how, you know, the sunset in the Persian Gulf the other day looked like, you know, devil's horns in the sunlight. And um, he said, you should incorporate that into your Revelation study. Um, I said, I'm not going to mention Iran at all. So I I was wrong about that. Um, But the whole point is you don't, you know, like we say, you don't read Revelation with your Bible in one hand, your newspaper in the other hand to try to say, when are these things happening? Um, the, the point of the revelation is you could be reading your newspaper in the 1900s or you can be reading the newspaper in the, in the 2020 and you're still reading about the same events that Revelation is talking about. It's still talking about the situation of the church and the world and what's going to characterize the church and the world in every age of the church until the Lord comes again in glory. Um, so we, we don't have to say, you know, read it and say, is this relevant for us now? Um, This is always relevant for us now. It's always relevant for the church now. Um, It's always important for us to know, despite, you know, the weird pictures that come across to us in Revelation, the the ultimate message is really clear, isn't it? There's a judgment coming for the wicked, and it's a terrible judgment. It's a judgment that you cannot survive. And knowing that judgment is coming, the dumbest thing you can do is cling to your sin and not repent. Repent. Because it it tells the horrible story of a people who one day will long to die and can't. Um, Who will long to escape the judgment of the Lord. Who as the beginning of the book told us, they'll they'll see him and and those who dwell on the earth will wail on account of him. It's a horrible picture. And it's a picture that nobody needs to go through. Right? It's, it's a scary book. My job is not here to come and say, this isn't really scary. This is scary stuff. But it's scary stuff to those who persist in their unbelief, persist in their own way of living, and refuse to submit their life to the Lord Jesus Christ. For those who put their faith and trust in Christ, what is the promise of this book? This kind of judgment might roar around you, but it won't touch you. Because you've been preserved by the Lamb of God, from the judgment that's coming. And so you don't have to fear this darkness if you, are, if you put your faith and trust in the Lamb. And so the, the book of the Revelation sets before us two ways of living, right? And pleads with us not to be those who are met with this kind of judgment. Um, and, and pleads with us to be reconciled to God while there's still time while there's still time to come from the kingdom of darkness into a kingdom of his marvelous light. 
while there's still time to repent of your sins and turn to the Lord who does have ears to hear and eyes to see and hands to save. And who speaks to us a word of peace. Right? And that, that's still the, the hope that comes out that John is still told, go preach it. And there's nobody here who can say this, this message is not for me, right? You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. This message is for everybody. And so when we get lost in the little details of Revelation, say, I don't have any idea what locusts with hair, what is, this, what is going on with this? You just take a step back and say, actually, the, the overall message is really clear. You don't want to get eaten by locusts. Turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, right? You don't, if you don't have to understand all the images and all their minutia to see the, the clear message that's being told from every, every angle. The righteous, you know, in the seals, the righteous suffer, but they go on to glory. Um, and the wicked are left going from horror to horror. Um, and that choice is pretty simple before us. Choose today whom you'll serve. Yeah? Yeah, they're always the unsaved. You don't, I don't think you see anybody ever in Revelation switch sides. I think it's almost always everybody is who they are when Revelation comes. For the fool in Proverbs... Um, sometimes, but it's not, it wouldn't be an exact one for one. The fool in Proverbs has some hope of becoming wise if he would seek wisdom. You know, Proverbs is always saying, he who seeks wisdom finds it. But in Proverbs, you're, you are often introduced with another character who's the simple. And the simple person is on the knife's edge of becoming a fool. You know, they're, they're kind of the, the sort of, um, you know, the, the person who just kind of is wandering down the street not aware of their danger. Um, and the simple person needs to be nudged towards wisdom or they'll become fools. So wisdom literature has much more of a, a nuance of, you know, there are, there are fools and they're kind of confirmed fools like the mocker and the scoffer. Um, and then you have the simple who are on the knife's edge and you have the wise. So I think there's a little more hope that you could become a wise person if, if you're a fool. Um, but... I wouldn't want to say one-to-one, fools are always the lost. Yeah. There's different purposes in wisdom literature as opposed to revelation, yeah. Any other questions? You've drunk from the fire hose enough for tonight? Okay. All right, well, thanks for your patience. Let's uh, close in, in prayer. Father, we thank you for this book. We recognize the the depths of it and the difficulty of our own understanding and our inability to always listen clearly to what the Spirit has to say to the church. We thank you for uh, faithful men who've helped us to understand it better, that we can navigate and see uh, the beauty of, of the message of this book. We thank you that you have promised that we will be blessed if we read it, blessed if we hear it, um, and that the time is near. So Lord, we pray that we would that you would build us up in in the sure knowledge that there is a judgment coming for the wicked, that you are a just God, uh, that you do see wickedness and you will call it to an account. Uh, We take comfort in that, Lord. Um, We pray also that you would shepherd us through the suffering that we have to face in this world. Uh, You forgive us for, for doubting your plans of providence, Lord, for being impatient in your coming as you gather your church. Lord, we pray that you would continue to build us up in that that hope for the future that's coming soon for the people of God, that it might not disappoint. We pray that you would continue to 
um, confirm us in the faith and remind us of the glory of belonging to Christ that when the judgment that's coming to this earth comes, we will not be caught in it, but we will actually be caught up to be together with the Lord and the church. And what a great day that will be. So we pray that you would build us up in the faith that many might hear of the Lord Jesus Christ and escape this fate, that we might be diligent in using the opportunities we're given to share the gospel, that we might uh, even be used by you to snatch people out of the fire and to bring them over into the kingdom of the Lord, that they might escape judgment. And whenever we talk about the judgment that's coming, our minds and hearts often go to the friends and neighbors that we have, the family members and loved ones who don't know Christ. And we pray that you would work in their hearts by your spirit, that they might know him and escape the judgment that's coming and honor and glorify him as Lord and live in the joy of knowing him. So build us up in the faith, confirm us in the hope, and we pray that the Lord Jesus will come quickly. Hear us, we pray in his name. Amen. All right, thank you for coming.